Blog Talk Radio. Talk Radio and Affiliate Networks. We're brought to you by National ACO. National ACO is one of 44 participants admitted as a next generation model ACO by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation. The company is experiencing strong growth, was nation leading in its first performance year, and has logged five years of successful operations. National ACO, a physician owned in government. and Population Health Marketplace. Welcome, everyone. I'm Greg Masters, the producer and moderator of the broadcast, known to some on Twitter as at 2HealthGuru and the publisher of ACOWatch.com. I am joined in the virtual studio by National ACO co-founders, Dr. Andre Berger, CEO, and Dr. Alex Foxman, President and Chief Medical Officer. And now for today's very special guest, Andy Slavitt. Andy Slavitt is a senior advisor and member of its uh, is a senior advisor and member of its Future of Healthcare initiative at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a nonprofit organization that combines the best ideas from both parties to promote health, security, and opportunity for all Americans. We're having a little trouble here connecting Andy. I'm just going to get him back on. Okay, sorry about that. I've been disconnected a couple times, but I'm back on. Okay, Andy, got you back. Thanks. Andy's a senior advisor and member of of its Future of Healthcare initiative at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a nonprofit organization that combines the best ideas from both parties to promote health, security, and opportunity for all Americans. Andy has decades of private and public sector leadership in healthcare, business, and technology. Over his career, Andy has led many significant and successful initiatives in healthcare, impacting millions of Americans while shaping the U.S. healthcare system. From 2015 to 2017, Andy served as the acting administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under the Obama administration tasked with overall responsibility for overseeing the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Today, Andy remains dedicated to building a sustainable, high-quality health care system that is available to all Americans and derives value from the private sector, health care providers, government, and innovators. Throughout his career, Andy has demonstrated the power of bipartisan collaboration, particularly as he has overseen bipartisan efforts in payment reform, health information technology, competition, and innovation. And with that introduction, over to you, Drs. Foxman and Berger. Help us get to know Andy, his take on the state of health reform, and the performance of the emerging value-based accountable health care sector. Well, this is Dr. Berger. Andy, uh, it's such a great privilege to have you on our show. Um, so I've always been a fan and actually, uh, what I admire, among many things I admire about what you've done, 
what you're doing is the fact that you really have um, had so much experience in the full spectrum of issues that, that face us, both from the, the public sector, the private sector, and you're also been such a, I think, great entrepreneur, a really forward thinker. So it's really a great pleasure for us to have you and help us uh, maybe enlighten us on some of the, I guess, questions of the day and, you know, that we have. But I guess before we get uh, on to love the discussion and before we get to your work at the Bipartisan Policy Center, um, it'd be great to, a little, to know a little more about you and, you know, what got you going, how you got started in the industry, and then kind of help us understand what led uh, you to that appointment as the acting administrator at the CMS. Well, thanks. Thank you all for having me on, and it's great to be uh, talking to everybody tonight. Um, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, uh, started in healthcare uh, on the heels of a personal experience. Uh, my way back in the 90s, um, my roommate from college, we were about uh, 10 or a dozen years out of college, uh, died from a brain tumor. And uh, he'd been sick for a very short period of time, and uh, he had gone through, and his his widow and um, uh, one-year-old twins uh, were in a very difficult spot. And in the in the course of helping uh, his widow out and their kids, um, it really sparked the generate the genesis of a new company that I created, and I became a healthcare tech entrepreneur in the 90s. Uh, started a company called Health Allies. Uh, and I was um, a tech entrepreneur for quite a while. This was after uh, I'd had a career in uh, doing a bunch of other things, including taking company public and Wall Street and so forth. And uh, that was really my first career in healthcare. Uh, ran that company for a period of time. Uh, then oversaw a company. I sold that to that company, I should say, to United Health Group, and I ended up. Um, uh, running a company called Optum Insight, and then uh, over time uh, became the group executive vice president there for Optum, and grew really grew that from about a billion dollars to about forty billion, and then I left to join the Obama administration, as you noted, in 2015. Uh, I really came in and led the turnaround of of the ACA and Healthcare.gov as an outsider, and was invited to stay, and then served two years in government. So that's a bit of my history. That's great. Thank you. You know, with the with your responsibility with the ACA, its implementation, we would love to get your perspective on the act in regards to its strengths and, and obviously some of its weaknesses as well. But also, uh, what would, would you do differently uh, to make this, uh, the ACA, more efficient and effective uh, moving forward? Yeah, I mean, if you were going to do kind of a, a, a scorekeeping of the ACA, I think you'd say it accomplished some important things. Uh, it has um, probably most importantly, it changed the compact with the American public, uh, what the American public expects, in that if regardless of their income or their health status or their prior health status, um, they're entitled to health insurance, to affordable health insurance. Um, now, has that been accomplished 100% for every American? No. But considering where we were uh, just you know seven to eight short years ago, we've gotten – really about 70 to 80% of the way there. Uh, we've reduced the uninsured rate in half. 
Um, we've had uh, improvements in quality and costs over the last seven or eight years that I think have been pretty substantial. Um, what we haven't done is we haven't really done our jobs implementing the law as a country well. We we haven't had the will. Um, there's just been far too much partisanship. So when challenges have arisen, uh, we haven't had the ability to uh, get through those challenges in the way you'd expect a country like ours to do. And some of those challenges are um, really relate to the ability to have more competition uh, and um, and uh, the ability to control costs in certain uh, areas. So all in all, I think from a law of this size, if you compare it to things that have happened in the past at this scale, like Medicare Part D, uh, Medicare Advantage, Social Security, things of that nature, those laws all had the ability to support and change the law once it was implemented. Uh, we need to get ourselves back to a place, the country, where we could take laws and support the things that work and fix the things that didn't. Well, well, thanks. Uh, that, that's a really good idea. Um, of course, with every good idea, there's a lot of good obstacles. So I just wanted to get your take on, on a few of these things. Um, the first question I have relates to um, how do you see, uh, if you do at all, the difference between, shall we say, uh, reorganization or evolution or improvement of the ability to pay for care, or in other words, the insurance component of it. And then there's the other obvious component, which is the actual care itself, the delivery of care. And how much do you see the Affordable Care Act kind of focusing on mm, the cost of the care, really the uh, Affordable Insurance Act, versus focusing on the you know the actual improvement in the care that's rendered for the cost that's incurred. So and I'm asking this because right now in the industry we're in the buzzword is value-based care. It's all about value. Um and the transformation that we're in and we're involved in is about transforming from this idea of volume to value. So I would just like to understand how you feel that's going, and who is leading that. Is it the, is it the market, is it the government, um, you know? And and what do we, what do you think we have to look forward to in terms of that relationship between the insurance aspects, the cost of care, and the value that's provided? Well, those two are, are really linked ideas, and they're they're incredibly important. And I think the part of the Affordable Care Act that's talked about the most, and it has the most, you know, press in the in the sort of general press, is is the coverage elements. Um, but but as you all well know, and as I suspect your listeners do as well, the other part of the ACA that I think doesn't get as much prominence, but has as much importance in terms of its long-term ability, are all the components uh, that were created to allow for the launch of things that we now know as accountable care organizations, primary care medical homes, um, and, uh, you know, bundled payments, uh, prevention uh, uh, offerings from Medicare and Medicaid. And that's what was primarily done by the creation of, of, the, of CMMI, the Innovation Center within CMS, uh, the funding that was put there. And then, uh, and then how we've implemented that is, I think, very, very important. I think in the Obama administration, 
Um, you know, we set as a public goal that 30% of all payments coming from Medicare uh, by the end of 2016 were going to be paid for uh, by using some amount, some uh, value or cost metric, and that by 2018 that that goal would be 50%. But what's important about that is that is that you know a lot of how you pay is not just in creating new formulas. It's around the psychology of how you're asking people to provide care and care for patients. And as the biggest payer in the country, we wanted to send a message to hospital CFOs and boards of directors and people setting up medical practices that they ought to be investing their dollars in things that keep people healthy, like uh, prevention systems and care coordination, as opposed to building new wings on their hospital, which of course is what you would do if you were uh, going down a model where you were expected to get paid endlessly on a fee-for-service basis. So we're at the beginning, I think, uh, we're in the first few years of, I think, a major change uh, that I think we are, you know, we tend to watch breathlessly and closely to see how it's doing. But it's, you know, it's beginning to get adoption, and uh, we have, I think, some of the tools uh, to do that. So the, the new administration, I think, has an important role to play in how fast that adoption uh, goes, but so does the commercial market, and so do care providers, and so do patients. So I think another buzzword that we have now is, is alignment. And I think, it, just in my opinion, alignment is a crucial, crucial part of us moving forward and moving from volume to value-based care, uh, especially with ACOs uh, now being in the forefront of, of this move. Where do you see we still need changes to really bring this alignment to, to, uh, to, to the forefront between the physicians, the hospitals, the skilled nursing facilities? How, how do you think we could improve on our, on our current uh, goals? Well, you know, I, I actually think it's really all about fundamentally getting aligned around the patient as opposed to getting aligned around the dollar. Uh, I mean, people, I think, are enamored of ACOs as we get enamored of every three-letter acronym that comes to the healthcare system uh, as, as a way that we're going to somehow create a formula uh, that's going to magically make everybody aligned and do the right thing. And we just know that that's not true. I mean, as long as there are formulas for getting paid and as long as our system's aligned around getting maximizing their pay, uh, you know, people will just end up teaching to the test. Uh, and it's the fear is that these formulas uh, are not about that. They're really about sending a message to say, if you do the right thing by the patient, if you keep them healthy, if you keep them out of the hospital, if you treat them in lower cost and more comfortable settings like their home uh, or, or a community clinic as opposed to the ER or the hospital, that, that you should be rewarded for that. And that's never going to work perfectly. Uh, these models are always going to have ways that people can game them. And so the hope is that the physician community and the people who run large delivery systems will take it upon themselves to reinforce the culture of patient care that really everything has to start with and that they will see that if by by doing that, um, you know, that's not something they're going to get penalized for. And I I really prefer that rather than, a, than everyone waiting around to see if uh, there's a new formula that allows them to find a new way to make money. Right. Well, um, I think that's, that's a superb point. Um, and given that point, where do you see – 
the ACOs fitting in to making that happen, to creating a patient-centered type of environment for for all uh, that creates that value. Uh, do they do they have um, a future long-term role, or are they a transitional kind of um, part of that evolution in your mind? Well, I think many of the ACOs and the accountable care organizations that are in, they were originally in what was called the Pioneer ACO that are now in the Next Gen ACO. These are organizations with, tend to be organizations with a lot of resources, a cultural commitment to the patient and health, and are, I think, you know, leading the charge, many of them well ahead of where um, the payment models are in their cultural focus and orientation. And they really ought to be applauded for that, and they really ought to be challenging the payers, including Medicare and Medicaid, to try to keep up with their advances in, in treatment. Now, there are some more, um, call them entry-level uh, ACOs that are, that are shared savings models. Uh, those are models that I think um, are best thought of, I think, as change management tools, uh, things that organizations can put in to help communicate with your docs why it's a good thing, uh, to take keep people healthy and why there can be some financial reward for it, but you know oftentimes those are those are used as ways to do other things uh, besides improve patient care, like capturing more volume and things of that nature that aren't necessarily consistent. Uh, so you know they they do need to quickly evolve. You know I think there is a uh, there is a um, important idea that. You know, we do, we live in a country where healthcare is very local. There's you know 305 different healthcare markets. All of them have different dynamics and are advancing at different paces. Uh, you know, what we really want to do is get everybody to quickly evolve to a place where they're more and more comfortable um, being accountable for the results of patient care. And uh, I think it's everybody's job to try to support the clinician and the patient in that process. So, so with us being in uh, the MSSP since, since 2013 and shifting to the next generation ACO model, we've clearly seen this this rapid transition to to uh, shifting risk uh, towards uh, uh, ACOs and to the physicians and so forth. And do you believe that the end game for this are provider sponsored health plans as the holy grail, or do you believe there's going to be some sort of other markets that will emerge and this transition will go in a different direction? You know, if you if you ask um, a hospital CEO who is fee for service this question, uh, what if you were fully capitated tomorrow? If you were all of a sudden had you know full capitation, in other words, you were getting paid a dollar amount for every person in your community, and you would be able to make your profit based upon how efficient you were at providing good care to those patients. The question, how much cost could you remove from your system? And most hospitals and most uh, people who run big organizations would tell you that they can save between 15 uh, and often as much as 30 or 35%. And so there's no question that if we look at our cost challenges as as a nation, and we have a major cost challenge as a nation, and it's not one thing that drives it. It's a lot of things that drive it. But if one of the things that drives it, is making sure we give everyone the right care, the right place at the right time, most efficiently, 
And uh, then, then, you know, having some sort of accountability right in the system, as you suggest, is going to be a way to get there. I don't know if I'd call it a holy grail. I don't think there's any such thing as a holy grail in healthcare other than getting patients healthy and well. Uh, that's the holy grail. But, you know, clearly we've got to do a better job making healthcare affordable to more people. And I think that's one way to do it. So um, piggybacking off of that uh, in terms of where we are now uh, in, with the Medicare population, we've got, we've got the um, Medicare Advantage plans. We have the new ACO models that are coming out and some of these other um, alternative payment models that you've alluded to. And then uh, we have still about 66-68% of beneficiaries in, in, in traditional fee-for-service. So let's, let's project out five years from now and, you know, take into account the targets that have been set forth by CMS, CMMI. Where is the shift going in terms of those three? How much uh, market share do you see the Advantage plans, uh, capturing how much the ACOs, and uh, of course, uh, with that I'm talking about the ACOs that are going to move into risk, and how much um, fee-for-service, traditional fee-for-service, will be left standing in five years. I think the real important part of that question is, at what point do people feel like their medical practices and their hospital practices are at, at some sort of tipping point where uh, if a patient walks in, they uh, and they knew nothing about uh, the patient, they would just assume that they're more likely to get paid more for keeping someone out of the hospital than admitting someone to the hospital. And, you know, that that tipping point, I think, in some part is a numerical question, like you suggest, and I think there's no question that those models are going to continue to grow. Uh, they'll grow at the pace of how effective they are uh, and how popular they are with consumers. And I think probably the most limiting factor right now is, you know, the ECO is not a thing that's known to the public. It's not a thing that's explainable very easily to the public. And uh, so I think it's going to um, uh, be inhibited uh, until people can explain the value proposition to the consumers uh, that, that, that are going to be participating in them. And I, I don't think there's a lot of models of having something that's successful sustainably that that the people, the consumers, the patients, you know, don't don't actually, uh, you know, feel a part of. Uh, but that's that's I think uh, one of the one of the more important elements. The but the the other is perhaps uh, something that I think we just have to get a little bit into the psychology of the care provider and the physician patient relationship uh, and kind of the modernization of the technology that's used to support patients and kind of the generation of millennials that are coming out of medical school. You know, there's a lot of changes uh, that, that, that happen, uh, and they happen uh, slowly, but, but over time I think, you know, what we have to do is make sure that all those forces as they come together need to leave us with a system where we are leaner, more modern, we have a more a simple system. We have one that's easier for people to access. We have physicians that feel empowered to focus on patient care and not have to spend a lot of their time on paperwork. Um, and, you know, when we get there, 
uh, it's going to be a lot of those pieces coming together, a lot of the hard work people are doing now around payment models, they're going to fall into the background. And they're going to have to fall into the background uh, in a simpler system. And, and you know, we have, we have a ways to go. But I hope people, as they're on this journey, are, uh, are not discouraged and recognize that they're part of leading the path. Yeah, I, I applaud that, um, your answer. I, th- I think that's fantastic. Uh, one thing I do want to discuss is, is uncertainty. And, and as we all know, uh, in healthcare right now, there, there is a lot of uncertainty. Uh, one day we have one law moving forward, the next day that law is stopped. And as a practicing internist, still practicing, and as a, the chief medical officer of National ACO, I get calls on a daily basis from physicians and suppliers, hospitals, uh, skilled nursing facilities, home health, really wanting to know when this uncertainty will stop, which way they should go. Should they sit on the sidelines? Should they invest in new technology and, and a new infrastructure? And what, what would you say to these physicians, especially or suppliers, these community-based uh, physicians and suppliers that are out there and really some of them not sure which way to go? Well, there's some things that aren't going to change. And, and the things that aren't going to change is we're going to have significant cost pressures uh, in health care. We've got a, a, a Medicare trust fund. Uh, we've got health care that many people uh, you know, can't afford. Uh, and I think, you know, most physicians and most of the people that you've mentioned, you know, they went into health care um, because they want to make people healthy, they want to make people better, they want to help cure people, um, and they want to reduce human misery. And sure, it's a it's a it's a place where I'm sure there's also plenty of people that are in healthcare because uh, they want to make money. But you know, given the opportunity, I'm convinced that uh, most people want to be able to do the right thing and are frustrated when the system works against them such that they can't. And so you know, given that, you know, I say don't wait for everything to be perfect. Uh, you know, we have a way, we have to force um, the sort of change to occur. And I, I think we all know that there are, um, you know, some of the best uh, uh, and uh, most respected, you know, care providers uh, in the country are those that have a cultural commitment uh, to patient care and to pushing those things forward. So to some extent, um, you know, I, I, we, we and the people you talked about, you and your ACO, really are the leaders. And, and to some extent, um, you're going to get uh, help from the government in the programs, and then there's going to be other times when you feel like you're not getting uh, support. Uh, but eventually they're going to get there. And I think you've got, uh, if you slow down and wait for them, and I think that's the message that I would suggest goes to the people who uh, call and, and talk to you about these things and ask you these questions, um, then uh, we're all going to be sort of um, uh, back in this kind of middle school dance where nobody's going to the dance floor and everybody's looking at each other and it's awkward and it's, we're slowing things down and patients will suffer. Oh, yeah, I remember those middle school days. I'm not going back to them. I agree. <laughs> it's, a great, it's, a great, uh, it's an ugly thought when I think about it, but it's a beautiful metaphor. Uh, one last little bit here, and that is the idea of, you know, we're in a, we'll call it a risky business, and pardon the pun, but the question I have is, is there any way forward for, you know, the providers of care, and, and basically, you know, the ACOs and these other entities, to really make 
this uh, dream come true without ramping up uh, and, and assuming uh, the financial risk uh, for the care. Is there any other way forward? Well, you know, look, I, I think uh, people who go into medicine to to deliver care, um, you know, they, they, you know, well, what's what's the risk that that they should be comfortable with, and what's the risk that they shouldn't be comfortable with? And you know, I, I think there are appropriate bounds and ways to think about this. I don't think uh, people whose principal job is to make people better ought to be, uh, you know, um, uh, at risk, uh, you know, in in a substantial way financially necessarily. But I do think that um, that this idea that we should be able to make the right thing to do the easy thing to do is an interesting way to think about it. For example, um, you know, if you know you have a patient who is going to the ER unnecessarily uh, when they could be treated in another way, they could be, uh, maybe they're just lonely, uh, and, you know, there are other ways to solve their problem. And if you invest as a practice and in the community in finding ways to have people reach out to this uh, to this individual, uh, make sure they have other ways to, to deal with their loneliness, uh, and they end up not going to the ER quite as much, you ought to be able to do that in a way where you feel like for having done what you knew was the right thing, built a relationship with a patient, uh, kept them well, that you are uh, getting the ability to uh, that's the way your practice ought to prosper. And, uh, you know, I think those are particularly important when we have patients that require a fair amount of resources, patients that have behavioral health issues or other social issues. They require an investment in time and otherwise. And, you know, we need, we need to make sure that we have robust approaches that allow people who invested those kinds of patients, invested time, to be rewarded appropriately. Thank you so much, Andy. Uh, a lot of really smart thoughts and stimulating ideas and great story. And we hope that you'll come back because there's so many more questions and we just uh, think that your enlightening uh, thoughts will serve everyone well. So we invite you back for a future to carry on. But, again, thank you so much for uh, for. Uh, joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Best of Thank luck you, to you all and all your listeners. It. Thank, Thank you. you. And there you have it. That'll have to be the last word for today's broadcast. I do want to thank our guest, Andy Slavitt, Senior Advisor to the Bipartisan Policy Center for his time and insights today. Stay current with Andy's work on Twitter via at Slavitt, A-S-L-A-V-I-T-T, and on the web via the Future of Healthcare Task Force Initiative, co-chaired by Gail Walensky, Dr. Bill Frist, and Tom Daschle at www.bipartisanpolicy.org and select the Health tab. Finally, do follow National ACO on the web via www.nacomso.com and on Twitter via at NACOMSO. Until we meet again on This Week in Accountable Care, for Drs. Berger and Foxman, this is your moderator, Greg Masters, saying bye now.
Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com marathon. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.